You're listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with community-backed independent for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Well, hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Find Your Voice. I'm Zoe Daniel and this is a podcast where we talk about policy issues affecting Australia and also Goldstein and we also talk about current events. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I sit, which is the land of the Bunwarang people of the Kulin Nation and I am in Bayside, Melbourne. Now my guest this week is Thomas Mayer. Thomas is a Torres Strait Islander man who was born on Larrakia country in Darwin. He's a union official, a signatory to the Uluru Statement from the Heart and the co-chair of the Uluru Working Group, a body that's advocating for the proposals made in the statement. And Thomas has also written four books. Thomas is here to talk to us about the Uluru Statement and also about Australia Day, Invasion Day, which is this week. Thomas, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Zoe. Thanks for inviting me. Great to have you with us. I really appreciate it. Now, I was looking at an article in which you were quoted this time last year from the Sydney Morning Herald that says it feels like Groundhog Day every time January comes around. Journalists are calling, panels are set up with speakers with different views to talk about this uh, date, if you like. Mm. But one thing that really struck this comment is that you said it all comes back to the Uluru Statement, we need to establish a national constitutionally enshrined First Nations voice so that we can have this discussion. Just tell me, how are the Statement from the Heart and the Australia Day Invasion Day debate tied together? Yeah, well, it ties together just on the simple matter of process and how um, a nation makes decisions about things in a mature way. Um, you know, the, the great problem with celebrating 26 January from our perspective is that it is the, you know, it's the date that marks the beginning of the genocide of First Nations people. It's when the first fleet um, arrived, um, you know, and, uh, and the first governor, Arthur Phillip, um, you know, basically uh, set the, the course of events that we, that leads us to, to today where you know, we're proportionately the most incarcerated people on the planet. You know, we still have um, almost a 10 year gap in um, life expectancy, among other gaps between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, all a, a result of, you know, um, everything that was done to us from that day, 26 January 1788. Now, I think the important thing to think about there is that before uh, that date in 1788, before, you know, that anniversary, the, we had a very peaceful existence. You know, we had um, great dispute resolution processes. The Uluru Statement talks about makarata, which is the Yolnu, um, you know, word for um, a dispute resolution process, um, which, which at the end of the, or when a settlement is reached, um, the the aggrieved parties come together closer than they were before, you know, the, the whole thing, you know, you bring the truth to the table, um, you bring good faith, you know, the, the sort of the, the normal things with dispute resolution. And so, you know, we had our, I mean, I'm, I'm on Bunjalung country now and, uh, you know, anybody, I'm sure all Australians have sort of, their breath has caught at times where they've gone to a special place and looked at the beauty that we have in this country 
and the abundance of of nature and you know um, of of food and you know everything and especially for people that have lived with that for for more than sixty thousand years knew how to live on this land in all the different climates that we have and different uh, environments. Um, you know what a great existence we have. You can't help but think that when you when you see the the beauty of this place. And so you know that's what twenty six January means to First Nations people. And I think for us to be a mature nation, we need to have that discussion with First Nations people about what that date means. Uh, but importantly, there should be a process of us together um, deciding what date we could celebrate and how we could celebrate it. Now, it goes to the Uluru Statement because the Uluru Statement's key proposal is a constitutionally enshrined voice. So rather than the Groundhog Day, you know, everybody having their different opinions in, in the media or on Facebook, you know, in, in various forms of media, we need to um, establish a First Nations representative body, a voice, so that we're genuinely at the table to have that discussion with the Commonwealth, with the Australian people, and, you know, become a, a, a mature nation that way. Mm. Tell me about the... Uluru statement and also why we're stalled with that? So I think we're stalled because anything that we have ever tried to do as First Nations people, you know, as far as progressing our, our rights um, and, you know, the respect that we're given has always come with a fight. You know, it's always come with great struggle. It's always taken time because you know, it's change is, is always hard for people, I suppose, but especially for a country that, you know, and I understand that Australia has come from that, you know, I've already talked about how, you know, we began with the British colonies. And I should mention also that from 1901, when, you know, the Australian Federation came to be, you know, the genocide, so the massacres and the forced assimilation and the stolen generations continued for many, many decades beyond that. Um, into my father's lifetime. Um, you know, the, sorry, I just got lost. What was the question? No, well, it, the question really is why are we stuck? And, yeah, and I stuck wonder, is it, is it to do with fear or, or what's, it, what's it about? Yeah, so there's been a long, you know, like the W.E. Stanner described as the great Australian silence in the Boyer lectures. We've had to try, you know, Australia has tried to forget that past and forget that Indigenous people have a right, you know, a special place and a rightful place in this country. And so, um, you know, this sort of uh, structural change, this constitutional change, um, you know, is something that is opposed from some that, you know, that are, are trying to conserve that. And the other reason I think, Zoe, is, is the simple matter of it's easier not to be held to account for the policy failures um, that have, you know, been ongoing even, you know, like to today, you know, the, these harmful decisions that are made um, that really, if it was, you know, you'd think if it was on any other matter that, if, you know, if it was all Australians harmed by these things directly, our families, no government would last, you know, um, no politician would be, be re-elected. Um, the Gap, we've had the Closing the Gap campaign and, you know, and the, and the, um, the official efforts for some time now, and it's still going backwards in some, uh, you know, key areas, mm. um, especially the incarceration of Indigenous women, you know, it's, it's on the rise. Um, it's fact-checked that we're the most, you know, proportionately the most incarcerated people on the planet. 
you know, it's the failure in policy, the lack of accountability. Um, they don't want to be held accountable about it. So I feel like the those who perhaps don't want to implement the statement or are resistant to it worry about what we stand to lose. I wonder if we could reverse that argument and, and talk about what we stand to gain from implementing the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Where are the benefits for uh, First Nations people yeah. but Australian society generally? Uh, look, that's a great question and it's a great thing to, to consider. Um, you know, I think what we gain, I mean, if you think of the Constitution this way, it's like the DNA of who we are as Australians, right? It's, the, it's what guides our growth and, and what we can do, the decisions that Parliament can make on our behalf. Um, when, and First Nations, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people aren't recognised by the Constitution right now, other than to say that, um, you know, well, the, the changes in 67 that um, saw us counted in the census, that was one of the amendments, and that the the power um, that the federal government has to make uh, special laws about, you know, a race of people um, was the other change. But when we change our DNA and First Nations are included, I think that adds 60,000 years, um, you know, genuinely of, of history of this country, that we can, we can genuinely say that, you know, this is, this is who we are, you know, this is um, the oldest living culture on the planet, um, the longest continuing culture, and that's us because it's in our constitution. I think the other thing that we gain goes to the accountability. So we're talking about the practical now, um, not just the symbolic, um, but practically we gain that level of accountability that I was talking about. We are calling for a voice to parliament. That's not a voice in parliament, you know, so there was that misinformation initially from Barnaby Joyce, though he's apologised and said he got it wrong, but Turnbull as prime minister said it and continues to say it. But we're not seeking that sort of power because we know the Australian people would never vote yes to giving us a, you know, another chamber in Parliament. Mm. It's simply a voice to Parliament to give advice to Parliament so that they can start to get things right. And if it's to Parliament, um, not to government, okay, so there's a difference there. Um, the, the, the coalition government started to skew it towards a voice to government and we said, hang on, that's not what we're calling for. Because a voice to government is status quo. You know, we can meet with the government, it's behind closed doors, it's not transparent. Um, the practical benefit here is that a voice to parliament would be First Nations people choosing their own representatives, so not handpicked people by the government. So people that we can hold to account, you know, as democracies do. Uh, and that advice being tabled to parliament on Hansard, it's transparent not only to the Australian people about what we advise on policy to close the gap, et cetera, um, but also to our, to our own people so that we can hold our leaders to account. Mm. And that's, that doesn't exist right now. And the closest we've had to it in recent times was the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. And just to give people some background on that, ATSIC came from the Barunga Statement, the Barunga Statement called for treaty. Bob Hawke promised that, but he wasn't able to deliver. But it also called for, you know, representation, you know, the Commonwealth to establish representation for Indigenous people, basically a voice. And Hawke delivered on that. But what happened to that is it had problems like all human organisations will have. You know, often when you mention ATSIC, people will say, oh, you know, but it, was, it didn't work, it was no good, some people played up. 
But what John Howard did was he amplified those problems purposely because he opposed it in opposition. And when at, uh, he amplified the problems, demonized the leaders, did not help us to resolve those issues, you know, um, uh, amend the way it operated, you know, deal with any poor behavior and, and all that. We, we did a review, Jackie Huggins, um, Queensland Aboriginal leader, did a review that never saw the light of day to, to improve organizations as always happens with organizations. Mm. But amplified the issues and repealed it with barely a whimper in 2005. So, you know, we need to re-establish this ability for our people to come together, um, have the constitutional right to do that so that it's not silenced like ATSIC was, and have the ability to, to table our advice to Parliament um, in a transparent way. And it's, it's so important. And so structurally, and as you say, there were, I guess, um, structural issues within ATSIC, things went wrong with the running of the organisation, which perhaps resulted in knee-jerk uh, response of dismantling it. How, how would this be different then to, to ATSIC? And is it a similar kind of structure that you're talking about? Is, is something uh, different? Yeah, it's, it's a representative body, you know, and there's all types of representative bodies. You know, there's a co-design report now with some suggestions on how it would look, you know, so, um, you know, a male and female from, from each state or region, you know, um, I, I don't think that's the thing that we should be caught up on. It, it's obviously not going to be, you know, hundreds of First Nations representatives descending on Canberra every city, right? You know, that's just ridiculous. It's, it's a representative body. I think what the main things that will be different from ATSIC is firstly that it won't be it'll be protected by the constitution so that it could be guaranteed to continue through the political cycles, even where there's a hostile government like Howard's was, right? And therefore it could improve over time. It could, you know, develop our, our leaders and our representatives. One of the things that ATSIG did, you see some of the, the, the wonderful indigenous leaders around the place now that are running um, Aboriginal health organisations and legal services and, you know, those types of, peak bodies, you know, even, uh, you know, uh, academic experts like Professor Megan Davis, expert in public law. Um, these people, they came through ATSIC as young people, you know, they, they learnt, um, you know, in a, in a safe place, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an Indigenous place, basically, um, how bureaucracy works, how politics works, how black politics works, and, you know, and, and if you could imagine that ATSIC could have continued today, um, how different policy in Indigenous affairs would be, um, how much more accountability there would have been, you know, because the Northern Territory intervention, which I think history certainly shows was an absolute failure and a huge waste of money and took us backwards a long way. You know, that came almost, you know, immediately after ATSIC was destroyed because we lost that you know, layer of protection, that voice. Mm. Um, hundreds of millions of dollars cut from Indigenous services and, and basically moved to non-Indigenous organisations with, with no, you know, um, outcome as far as improving the problems, uh, mm. improving, you know, the gap problems. Uh, you know, the Aboriginal benefits um, money, you know, so there is Indigenous money that is meant to be, you know, spent for Indigenous benefit and, um, the former Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Nigel Scullion, was 
was giving that money to the Fishermen's Association to fight against land rights claims and that was not for the benefit of Indigenous people. These sorts of things happen when you don't have um, a voice that can be heard. Now, not, not everyone is behind the statement from the heart. There have been some First Nations people who've spoken out against it. What, what are the concerns among those people about the... Yeah, I think, um, I think for some of the people that oppose it, Indigenous people, they're legitimate concerns because it's very hard for, for our people if you, you know, I mean, if you consider that long history of broken promises and, uh, you know, and poor treatment by government, that it's hard to trust anything that is going to happen. And it's quite easy, it's much easier and more comfortable uh, um, to oppose everything, right? And so that's the mindset of uh, some of the Indigenous people that oppose it. Uh, I think, um, so it's important to, to note that Uluru um, had almost 300 people there. Uh, and there was a handful of people that walked out on the second of three days at that constitutional convention that we held in, uh, in May of 2017. Um, but a majority of people, you know, um, around 250 of 270 people remained and continued discussions, continued to do that hard work of consensus building. And, you know, um, when the Uluru Statement was read on the final day, it was endorsed with standing acclamation. And, um, you know, it was just a wonderful moment. If you could imagine, because there were 13 regional dialogues that led to Uluru. And, and elected delegates to go to Uluru. And then when we came together at Uluru, there was, of course, there was more passionate debate and discussion. And so in that moment where it all came together, where we said, this is the national consensus position on the next steps, um, you know, um, for, for our nation, it was a wonderful moment. It's, it's sort of a, an obvious statement to say that some don't agree with it because, you know, you it could be, you know, a, a union conference of 300 people or, you know, a, an ALP conference or a Liberal conference or whatever, um, a meeting of, you know, a motorbike association or whatever. You never get 100% agreement and we're no different. We're not homogenous. We come from different places. We have different perspectives, different upbringings, uh, completely normal. Mm. And so then sort of bringing this conversation back to 26th of January, on issues like that if we had the statement from the heart and a, an Indigenous voice to Parliament, do you think that would help sort of synthesise that argument and bring people together in order to move us forward mm. on those sorts of things as a community? Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, if you could imagine that you know, we've got a representative body there on our political priorities as guided by the grassroots. And, you know, we could have that discussion with the parliament. We could actually consult with First Nations people. You know, the, the representative body would, would run that process of saying, okay, what is our position here? What is our, um, not one position, because you're still going to get people that disagree, right? It's democracy, that's human nature. But we could genuinely say to Australia, this is the First Nations, you know, this is the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander position on what 26 January means to us and what we think the solution is. Mm. 
and we could have that discussion with the parliament and the Australian people and come to a decision. It's the same with so many things. This is why I'm so passionate about the voice because especially as a trade unionist, I understand that you know, the, the, the thing that always precedes good outcomes for a collective of people is organizing your structure of representation. Otherwise you're just a rabble. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, so whether it's about the solutions to closing the gap, whether it's about you know anything else that we debate, all sorts of policy issues, and and not just obviously indigenous policy issues, but things that might affect us indirectly, sort of, you know, like um, yeah, I mean, there's there's superannuation is a good example, mm-hmm. you know, life expectancy gap. Um, if we had a, an established First Nations voice, we could have that mature and proper discussion with the government and the Australian people about what we could do to help. And what's your impression of the public consciousness on this and the chances of getting the Uluru Statement um, put through in the next parliament and an Indigenous voice? Yeah, I think we can win. I think we can win, not just because of, you know, my little bubble and what I've seen, you know, I mean, I've travelled with the Uluru Statement for 18 months and, you know, the, the original canvas in the, in the first 18 months of the campaign because we had no money, you know, we had no funding, government rejected it and, and just we had to do everything that we could to build the campaign. Um, and I've seen the people, people respond to it, you know, like it's a simple request, you know, it's, it's not a third chamber to parliament. Uh, it's simply the right in a representative democracy of all things for a people to organise representation and have a voice on the, the matters that affect them. And that's especially fair when you consider, you know, our long history in this country, our special place and everything that's happened to us. But, you know, like I went to, you know, like uh, town halls in small towns, like um, uh, what's that place, Violet Town, for example, in Victoria, you know, all around the place, you, you know, all non-Indigenous people in, in some of those places and, you know, farmers and, you know, and we're at first they're sceptical when you explain it, as I've explained it throughout this podcast, it's like, yeah, you know, why wouldn't we do that? Mm-hmm. Isn't that fair? Um, and so beyond my bubble and what I've seen, um, we've done polling that has shown a growing um, support for a referendum to enshrine a voice. The numbers of people that would vote yes, our, our regular polling is showing now it's around 60%. It's almost at 60%. And that's grown in the last 12 months, even through the pandemic. You know, we did polling in March last year, polling in August of, of sorry, March of the year before last and August of 21. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, um, that is how we know that we can win this. The other thing is, you know, like Reconciliation Australia does a, a, a barometer, you know, sort of a test of the sentiment of the Australian people every year. And over 90% of the Australian people think that the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people is something that's important and should be addressed. Um, and, you know, a great majority of people support what the Uluru Statement calls for, in particular, um, enshrining a First Nation voice in our constitution. Um, I think with the, with the right leadership in, you know, in a prime minister, especially, uh, we can win um, a referendum. The most successful referendum in this country was 67 when we were counted. And as the Uluru Statement says, you know, now we seek to be heard. And I think the Australian people will respond in the positive.
Well, Thomas, thank you for your generosity in explaining all of that to us today. It's no really very much appreciated. Would you like me to recite the Uluru Statement to end? Yes, please. Yes. I don't get it wrong. We gathered at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention, coming from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands, and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did, according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial, and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land or mother nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom, remain attached there too, and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished, and it coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise that a peoples possess the land for 16 millennia, and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years? With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionately, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innate criminal people. Our children are alien from their families, unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is a torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional change to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our own destiny, our children will flourish, they will walk in two worlds, and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice in the Constitution. Makarada is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Thanks, Zoe. Thank you, Thomas. Thomas Mayer with the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Find Your Voice. Thank you. You can learn more about Zoe, her policies, and how you can support this grassroots campaign at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and share with your family and friends. Every bit of support matters. This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel, Level 1, 9-214, Bay Street, Brighton, Victoria.